we come to our final speaker, Jackie Milner, who was an environmental scientist who specialised in botanical matters back in her hometown of Perth. And she moved back to Melbourne last year and she left behind, and she left that behind, but brought her passion for amateur astronomy with her. With 20 years of astronomy outreach, uh, most of that as a volunteer at Perth Observatory, and six years under the dome of the planetarium at SciTech in, in, in Perth, um, when she's asked how she got interested in the night sky, still, the best answer she can give is that she was born with it. Jackie. Hello. I'd like to tell you the story of somebody who had a great influence on my life, both indirectly and directly, a New Zealand astronomer called Graham Blow. And I'd like to tell you about the most exciting week of his life. As I mentioned, I knew him personally. His reputation as director of the occultation section of the Royal Astronomical Society in New Zealand um, uh, is, uh, it, pre it preceded him because he uh, rather promoted it um, quite heavily because <laughs> it was his passion. And, um, but I didn't meet him until 2008 and we ended up writing a manual together. So I did uh, spend a bit of time talking to him. Um, so th there's a few personal anecdotes in there. So it's maybe a little bit different to some of the, um, the ones we normally hear. <laughs> Um, if you're not familiar with occultation science, I know it got a big um, rap back in June, just before New Horizons went past Pluto. Um, it's where um, one body hides another. So to occult is to hide something. Uh, so in astronomical terms, uh, it's one body going in front of another. Um, usually it's the moon uh, going eastwards over a star or an asteroid perhaps passing in front of a star. And while the moon observations are not so important these days, it used to measure um, the distance to the moon, um, the asteroid ones are still very uh, valuable. Um, we can, if you get a few observers out there, you can get an idea of how big the asteroid is, and um, we can even find little moonlets and rings around them. So, it's uh, a little, a little known branch that's uh, gradually um, gathering pace out there in the astronomy world. Um, one of the observers here in Australia once described it as waiting for nothing to happen. Because uh, you, you kind of do that. You kind of go out there and you sit there and you watch, watch, watch. You, well, you're running a video these days and uh, nothing happens. And it's still important um, knowing where the asteroid was not. Um, but, so these, these things still have to be done. Um, the other in-house joke we have is that the, um, the really important events are always uh, five degrees off the horizon at 3 a.m. in the morning on a uh, weekday. So you can't sleep in afterwards. <laughs> But uh, we do it anyway. Um, okay, but back to Graham. Um, he was born on the, the 5th of August, 1954, so he shared a birthday with Neil Armstrong. Um, and even though he was a teenager during that Apollo era, that, it, that didn't influence him um, into astronomy. He, he just sort of had a natural fascination with it. And um, I know it was also a way to get out of the house as well. Um, and uh, when he was 15, his father bought him a 60 mil refractor. And he thought, great, now I can do some real science. So he joined um, the variable star section 
um, of the Royal Astronomical Society, which was uh, under the leadership of the legendary Frank Bateson at the time. Uh, there's another story altogether. <laughs> and uh, he uh, also joined the local Auckland uh, Astronomical Society where he grew up. And it was the beginning of uh, a lifetime of observing. Uh, towards the end of 97, when he was finishing his honours thesis in, um, in science, uh, two things happened. Um, he started the occultation section, um, which he became famous for. And um, uh, he'd been running a, a little... Uh, a program with some other friends um, for encouraging juniors up and down the country. Um, and it sort of folded after a few years. So he took this on, but he also got a job at Carter Observatory in Wellington. Now, I hope there's a few of you out there going, oh, an astronomer's job with only honours? Wouldn't happen these days, but it did back then. So, uh, so he moved down to uh, Wellington at the beginning of 78. Um, it was a great job because uh, he got to travel up and down the country as well. He wasn't just stuck in Wellington working at Carter. Um, they had an outstation at a place called Black Birch um, in the mountains just behind the Marlborough Sounds. And he also got to go down to Mount John at Tekapo. Uh, he was also the media liaison person for the observatory um, at the time. Uh, I, I was told he appeared in a children's television show, which... Um, <laughs> I don't know how that went. Uh, he also co-wrote a book on, on Halley's Comet at the time, um, amongst all the other hundreds of books that were written. Um, and, but he, he still remained um, a media contact um, once he left Carter. And um, even when I knew him right at the, uh, the end of his life, he was still getting rung up um, for comments by the media about things that had happened, you know, fireballs come down and things like that. Uh, he did masters while he was at Carter's in uh, photoelectric lunar occultations. He looked at the, uh, the Fresnel diffraction fringes. You get uh, as stars disappear um, behind an airless body. Um, you get uh, just... Uh, I know somebody's talked about um, Fresnel before here. So you get this little fringing pattern, and he studied that. Um, and he was given the opportunity to do a PhD, but he turned it down, and then the opportunity slipped away. So he didn't go um, any further that way. In 1988, uh, there was an opportunity to uh, witness a occultation of Pluto. Now, this was big news even back then because they, they'd never successfully done one before. They knew Pluto was small, but not exactly how small. And um, there had been some suspicion there was an atmosphere there, but they had no proof. So, again, much like it was um, just a few months ago, um, for New Horizons, there was a big international effort. There were four observatories in Australia. There was three in New Zealand and the Kuiper Airborne Observatory, um, which is the forerunner to Sophia, which they use today, um, came down and was based in Christchurch. Uh, so Graham was at Black Birch that night and uh, he uh, found the, the star he had to find, pointed the telescope at it and he... Uh, flipped down, once he had it ready, he, um, he flipped up the little mirror um, to let the light signal go down to the photo detector and the photometer. And, uh, and he waited. So he was waiting for nothing to happen. But something did happen. At the time when the occultation was expected to happen, the pen on the paper chart recorder, this is 1988, I've got to remind you, <laughs> um, started to move. But it didn't move as fast as he thought it would because he's used to seeing stars disappear in a fraction of a second. 
And as quick as you click your fingers, this is normally the way the stars go. And this was taking over half a minute. Two things could have been happening. And he had to make a decision, really, himself in a fraction of a second. Because one thing, the first thing that comes to mind, is that the telescope was drifting. Now, if you've ever run a telescope, you know that they drift. Even the biggest ones drift. And you have to keep correcting them. Um, or this was actually the occultation and he had to leave it. But if he wanted to check it, he had to flip that mirror down and that meant a loss of data. So he decided he would leave it. Turned out to be a good decision. He was actually collecting real data. And um, he uh, recorded the whole thing. And the telescope was also drifting at the same time. So he had both things happening. Um, he did record the ingress of the star of Pluto over the star, but he kind of missed the, the um, egress a bit. But it didn't matter because the other six observatories um, all got a result. So they, they did actually get a full picture in the end. Now, um, the um, Kuiper Airborne Observatory usually gets all the credit for this. And I know the Americans put their hand up and they go, we did it, we found it. Um, they forget there's these uh, other six observatories on the ground helping out. Um, and Graham told me he got to fly on the, the Kuiper Airborne Observatory. Now, I understand it's a little bit different to Sophia. And he said he was, um, he was standing there, he was watching the telescope as they flew. And it went, it went up and down like this, and he was going, this is really weird, right? It's going up and down. How's it saying anything? And eventually he realised it wasn't the telescope that was going up and down, it was the airplane going up and down all around. So it was... Um, yeah, he said, don't think about it too hard. <laughs> um, so he took uh, his data back to uh, Wellington, uh, retired to his room with his friend uh, Warwick Kisling, who was a mathematician, um, and they started to analyse the data from the other six observatories um, as, as it came in on five-inch floppy disks in the mail. Because it is 1988, remember, there's not quite the internet there. <laughs> Um, and, and it was Graham's job to collate all this uh, ground-based data and send it back to Lowell. Um, and he realised, as the week went on, as he saw the picture come together, he realised what he had in front of him and he knew that he had been part of making a very major discovery about our solar system. And he said, nothing I've ever done since then has ever beat the feeling I had that week. He uh, eventually left Carter Observatory and life as a professional astronomer in 95, um, after being there 17 years, there was a restructuring, and uh, so he left. Um, he got a job with the Inland Revenue Department, which is a tax department in New Zealand. Um, and, uh, and something you need to know about Graham was he was a real night owl. Um, I asked his sister about it, and she wasn't sure if it was genetic or a habit, but bedtime for Graham was 2 a.m., and if you think that, you know, you still need your eight hours sleep, it, Means a correspondingly late rising in the morning. And um, thank goodness for flexi hours, because he said he trained uh, the Inland Revenue people not to expect him before 11 a.m. in the morning. Uh, and and, um, and he, he told me a few other things, but I've, I've got a couple of stories short, so I'll leave it out. Um, photography was a huge part of his life. Um, he liked landscapes and motorsports. He was passionate about his motorsport photography. It's the only sport he ever cared about. Um, as I'll mention a bit later, um, he did uh, pursue the motorsport as, um, as a professional job at one stage. He won two awards. Uh, actually, he won three. Um, he won uh, motor, yeah, motorsport 
Oh, I'll get it. I'm getting it mixed up. But he did, he won some awards for that. And um, the landscapes often appeared in the hallmark calendars for New Zealand um, and on some cards as well. So uh, so he did all right there. He was an inveterate list maker. I've never met anybody who really loved making lists. And the family was uh, very amused to find um, a list about one of his lists when he passed away. Um, and, and I used to um, sometimes... Uh, he... He's one of these people that, unless he got a deadline coming, he'd never got anything done. And I'd be trying to get stuff out of him with this manual we were writing together. And he would threaten me with his master to-do list, which was 54 pages long, uh, plus the 10,000 unread emails that he had sitting in his inbox. But I think there's a lot of people like that out there. He was uh, a wonderful piano player. He, um, he took lessons into adulthood because it was a great stress relief for him. Um, so if you think sort of easy lounge music kind of thing, but he was fantastic at it. Um, loved the movies, would uh, spend a couple of weeks each year putting aside for the Wellington Film Festival, four to five films a day. Apparently the other people did more, but there was, 40 plus was what he usually aimed for. Um, but in 2009, um, he was diagnosed with a tumour on one of his kidneys and they removed that, but two years later... Um, after a bout of internal bleeding, they'd found that it actually spread throughout his body. Um, he was uh, fiercely independent in his own words and with the um, aid of some uh, expensive drugs, he outlived his prognosis by several years um, but eventually succumbed on the morning of 31st of December 2014, uh, age 60. He'd been made a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society of New Zealand in 2010. He was associate of the Photographic Society of New Zealand and as part of the Queen's Honours List on the 1st of January that year, he'd been awarded the Order of New Zealand Merit for his astronomical efforts over the years. He never married, yet he was known to have a much wider circle of female friends out there. His idea of torture was to be stuck in a pub talking football and cricket. Um, he'd much rather be uh, with the women and enjoyed their conversation much more. Uh, and he left no children, but he still has left uh, a couple of significant legacies behind. Um, okay, all these photographs, of course, a huge catalogue that a friend's working on at the moment uh, to release online for everybody to enjoy. Uh, he has an asteroid named after him, uh, 19582 Blow, uh, named by an amateur, John Broughton, who's found um, quite a few of them, actually, several hundred, I think. And, uh, and, of course, the occultation section, which is still going today, 38 years later. A small dedicated, uh, dedicated band of observers, which I'm one of, um, either side of the Tasman, always willing to drag ourselves out of bed, 3 a.m. in the morning, to wait for nothing to happen. We'll wait for something to happen, we hope, because that's why we always do it. Because we just never know, uh, in doing so, that, you know, we might just see something we didn't expect. And it might make it the most exciting week of our lives as well. Thank you.